Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, good morning. Isn't that funny how it happens every week? It's like a light goes on, and all of a sudden it's like, like you're on a TV show. A light goes on, and it's like, okay, shut up and sit down. And like all of a sudden you're like talking, 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 and all of a sudden it just like goes silent. And if like I miss it by five seconds, it's really awkward. You know, it's like I'm, if, I'm not, if I'm not ready to go, if I'm ready, it's like, wow, it's over. Like what's happening now? Uh, we're so glad you're here. My name's Mike, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Rock Peak, and uh, we're glad you're here. If, if you're brand new, a special welcome, and uh, a couple things. Inside your program is a uh, white message note sheet. We're going to use that for our time of teaching today. Uh, second thing is, if you, if you are here and you're new, about once a month, we have a special dessert at our house on Saturday night, Lynn and I do, just to welcome those who are new, uh, kind of orientate you, uh, get you oriented to the church a little bit, get to hear a little about your story, get to hear, share a little of our story, a little bit about where the church is going, how to get connected, and it's just a great time. We call it a next step dessert, and, and we're having one of those at the end of June, I think it's June 25th or 6th, something like that. You can sign up online, but the reason I'm mentioning it today is that we're trying something new this month, is that at our next service at 11 o'clock uh, today, uh, we're actually having a next step. It's a brunch uh, here on campus over in our children's building. The information's in your program. And so if you're here, you're relatively new, you say, hey, I would like to jump in on that, you can just head over there at 11 o'clock uh, today, just jump in. The only thing we'd ask is that if you have children and uh, they're in the children's ministry right now, that you'd go and let those children workers know that you're going to have, you're going to be letting your kids stay a second time because otherwise uh, we'll be sending the police out looking for the parents that got, got lost. So, uh, so that's it. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching. Y'all ready to go? Well, that's a little weak. Uh, <laughs> it's like, wow, 42 people are ready to go. The rest of you are like, no, I'm sleeping in. This is like I'm catching up. So are you ready to go? Yeah. <laughs> much, much better. Let's go. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that uh, you'd be with us during this time. And, and God, we're, we're here really to meet with you. That's what it's all about. That, that's why we come. Um, we come as a church to meet with you. It's, it's not about going through the motions. It's not just about like coming to church. We're really opening up our hearts to say, God, would you speak? We need, we need, we, like we live off of your word. Uh, like your son said that, that we, can't, we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we, we need that word to sustain us, to, to speak, to heal, to encourage, to drive, to direct. And so we pray that today you would come and speak. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, our story, it, it starts today about 2,000 years before the time of Christ. And, and uh, he, he's grown up in this pagan city. It's an urban town. It's a very advanced culturally city. It's, uh, it's in the Middle East. In fact, it's in, in the day we call it today, we call it Iraq. And uh, his, his parents are pagans. Uh, everyone in the city is pagans, worshipers of the moon god. And yet, for some reason, God chooses him to start his kind of rescue mission for planet Earth. And so, so God comes to him one day. He's about 75 years old. We're not sure if it's the first time God had come or not, but on this particular day, God comes to him, and, and he calls him, he, he gives him an assignment. He calls him to, to leave his, his home, to leave his country, to leave his, uh, his extended family, and to take off and, and to go on that sort of faith journey. Just kind of trust him. I'm not going to tell you where we're going to go, but just trust me, and, and we'll get there. And so uh, for whatever reason, he decides to trust this, this God. There's a lot of promises involved. If you trust me, this is what I'll do. And so he, he gathers up his family. He gathers up all his possessions, and they head out, not knowing where he's going. Well, they, they end up in the land that today we would call Israel. And, and as he gets there, uh, they, they land this city that's about 40 miles north of Jerusalem called Shechem. 
And, and once they, they get there, God appears to him again a second time, and he, he kind of confirms he's on the right path, you're on the right direction, and he gives him another promise. And his promise is, is that one day I will give, uh, I will give this land to, to your descendants. So that's not what he actually says. What he actually says, I will give this land to your seed. And that actually becomes an important choice of words for what comes later today. Uh, today we're, uh, we're continuing this series that we've been in now for a month, month and a half, something like that. Uh, it's, if you're brand new, we want to welcome you. It's a series that's called Freedom. It, it's a study of a letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of churches that he and his buddy Barnabas had planted recently in, in an area that's uh, today we'd call it uh, southern Turkey. But uh, at the time, it was the Roman province of Galatia. And so um, the issue that, that Paul is dealing with, one of the main issues he's dealing with in this letter, it's actually a couple issues, but the main issue that he's dealing with so far is, is how is it that we as fallen human beings can have a relationship with God? And what he's been teaching us is that, it's, that, that anyone who wants to have a relationship with God can have it, and it's not based on our, our past, it's not based on our our spiritual resume. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or how far from God you've, you've been or how much you've rebelled. If you want a relationship with God, you, there is a way that God has made a way. And that way comes through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the one who went to the cross to take your rebellion, to, to pay the price for your sin, to take the curse. And so we can have a relationship with God, not based on our performance, but based on Jesus's performance. And, and so, um, if you were here last week, uh, Paul's been supporting this, this teaching. He says, you know, this is not really a new thought. This is the way God's people have always related to him, uh, by faith and not by performance. And to, to support his point, if you were here last week when Pastor Dave Cox was teaching, we, we started chapter 3, and he goes back to the father of the Jewish race, who was Abraham. And, and so, uh, that's the story we started the day with, of course. And so, Abraham, uh, this, this first uh, Jew that uh, was, came from Iraq, <laughs> interesting, but anyway, um, the first Jew who came from Iraq, um, that when God showed up to him, he gave him all these promises of relationship with himself, and it wasn't based on Abraham's performance, it was based totally on his willingness to trust this God, and so, so, it, so Paul's kind of laying out his case here, see, it's the way it's always been, that, that God's people have always related to him based on faith or trust, not based on performance. But, of course, in Galatia, there's these false teachers who are teaching these new Christians there. No, that's not the way it works. In order to have a relationship with God, you have to kind of follow all the Old Testament laws that God later gave to the nation of Israel. And, and so the question is, is, well, if our relationship with God is truly based on, on faith and not our performance, then why did God give all these laws later to the nation of Israel? Why did he do that? And, of course, what the false teachers were arguing is, was, well, that was stage two of their relationship with God. Like, like you start off by faith, but then you need to take a next step and follow all these laws if you want to continue to have a relationship and so on. And so today Paul's going to address this issue of, of why did God give the, uh, the, the law to Israel and what, does, what part does the law play in our life? And it's a really powerful stuff for, for us as Christ followers to understand what it means to follow Jesus and how our relationship works. But I've got to warn you, this passage that we're going into today is probably the toughest. There's one other that vies for it. It's probably the toughest passage we're going to study in all of Galatians. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, back in 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter talks about the writings of the Apostle Paul. He calls them scripture like the Old Testament, the Word of God. But he says they're often hard to understand. 
And, and it remind, this is one of, those, one of the hardest passages the Apostle Paul to understand. And so I've got to warn you, we, we need our game face on, right? Like to, to tonight, the Lakers are going to war, right? The night, they're going to war against the, the evil empire, the Celtic. And, and, and if uh, some of you here are cheering for Boston, it's time for you to repent and get right with God. And, and so I'm just telling you, right? But, but here's what we know. Here's what we know is it's going to be a physical game, right? Like to, to, to win tonight, game face on. It's like this is like tackle football in shorts. I mean, this is a serious game. And so if, you know, if you're going to win tonight, game face on, right? So what I'm telling you is we're getting ready. We're going to a tough passage. If we're going to win today, game face on, right? You've got to get with me on this. There's going to times your eyes are going to start rolling back in your head. I'm just warning you, right? It's a tough passage. Now, to make it easier uh, for you, I've broken up into bite-sized pieces. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the, the Law Versus the Promise, and it's only 11 verses. You're saying, how hard could it get? Well, as an indication, I've broken it into three passages, right? So the first one's called The Promise, A Deal's a Deal. So let's jump in. Chapter 3 of Galatians, and starting at verse 15. Now, he starts off, 3.15, he says, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. So let's set the stage. Context is, beginning of the chapter, uh, we're made right with God through faith alone. Proof text, Abraham, father of, the, uh, father of the race, when he came to Christ, or he came to God, uh, it was through faith alone. And so that's when he's been arguing. Now, let me set the stage. Uh, as you read into the text, here's apparently what's going on in Galatia. What the false teachers were teaching was it's great that you're following Abraham. Yes, this is how we start our relationship with God. We all start by faith. That's kind of stage one. But then you go to stage two of our relationship with God. And in stage two, historically in the nation of Israel, God later required uh, uh, Abraham to be circumcised. And then about 400 years later, Moses comes along and he gives them the law. And so, yes, you start by faith, but just like the nation of Israel had to progress in their relationship with God and you add circumcision, you add the law, so in our lives, if we want to be right with God, it's good to start by faith in Jesus, but later on, you have to add the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow all the, the Old Testament ritual laws. You need to start doing that, and, and, and that's how you are right with God, and that's how you mature spiritually. So are you with me? That's what the false teachers are teaching. And so Paul is saying, no, that's not the way. Uh, and what he's going to be arguing in this first passage is, hey, when God came to Abraham, he made a deal. And the deal was, here's the promises, and if you trust me, you will get the, you'll get the deal. And that's the deal. And so what Paul's going to be arguing is that when, when the law comes 400 years later, God's not changing the deal. Because that's not how deals work. That's not how contracts work. Even like in human affairs, when you sign a business contract, you don't come back you know, years later and go, I don't like the deal. I want to change the deal. It's like a deal's a deal. If you have a will and, and you make a will in your life and then you die, your kids can't come and say, hey, we want to change the deal. Like a deal's a deal. And so what Paul's going to be arguing is that, hey, that whatever re God gave the law to Israel, that's true, and the law's a good thing, but he didn't give it to add additional requirements so that the promise would come true. Does that make sense? You following that? Okay, so if you get that, we'll begin to be able to follow this. So he says, um, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, like a contract, um, that has been duly established, like been notarized or whatever, uh, so it is in this case. For the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. So remember, let's go back to the story we started the day with. 
Abraham comes out of Iraq. He, God leads him to the land which eventually becomes Israel. He, he lands in this city called Shechem, about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. When he's there, God shows up a second time. Now, he's given him all these promises, right? But God shows up, and he gives him an additional promise. He says, see this land that you're on? This is the land I'm going to give to you and your descendants. But in the Hebrew, it's not how he goes. He doesn't say into your descendants. What he literally says is this is the land I'm giving to you and your seed. Now, in the Hebrew, the word seed is much like our English word offspring. It can be used to to refer either to singular or plural. Like if I have five kids, I can say these are my offspring. But if I have one child, I can say this is my offspring. It works both ways. So context determines what you mean. And here's what Paul's going to argue, that when God came to Abraham and said, through, uh, I'm going I'm to bless you uh, through your seed, and, and that your seed's going to hear the promise, he says what God was really referring to was the ultimate seed of Abraham, who is Jesus, the Messiah, the ultimate son. And so it's it's and so God so God makes this promise. I'm going to make all this. I'm going to give you all this stuff. All these promises by your faith in me. They're going to come through this ultimate seed. And so what his argument is is therefore the law that comes later. It can't change that deal. That deal's a deal. And so here he goes. He says so the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now the scripture does not say and to his seeds in plural meaning many people, but to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is who? Christ. Remember, Christ means Messiah, who is Messiah. Um, So what I mean is this. The law, which was introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant or the contract previously established by God with Abraham and thus do away with the promise. Like whatever, whatever the law was added for, it wasn't added to change the deal. It wasn't added as an additional requirement. You know, it's like if you tell your kids, hey, if you clean up your room and, and you, uh, you get an A in, in, your, your, uh, you get an a in geometry, I'll take you to uh, uh, Disneyland. You don't make that deal, and then you come back later and say, oh, and I also want you to wash the car, and don't go to the prom with that boy. You know, it's like, you, you don't come back. That, you, that would be a violation, right? And so that's what he's saying is that God's, when he adds the law, God's not coming back and changing the terms. Um, because that, if you did change the terms, then, it, then the promise wouldn't be what it's based on. And that's what he says in verse 18. For if the inheritance, you know, the promises, if they depend on the law, on obeying the law, then it no longer depends on the promise that God originally made to Abraham, but, on, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So, so Paul's first argument, false teachers, they're saying, hey, uh, yeah, it was good to start by faith, but then later you had to add the law. They're an additional requirement in order to receive the promise. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. God made a deal. A deal's a deal. The law was added, but it was not an additional requirement to receive the promise. See? Now, so, but it still raises the question, well, then why was the law given if it's not an additional requirement? And so we move into this next section called the law, a temporary arrangement. And, and he's going to begin to explain this. And so in 319, he says, well, then what then was the purpose of the law? And he says, well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed, the Messiah, 
And so the Messiah uh, to whom the promise referred had come. And so he says the law was added. It was a temporary arrangement until the Messiah came. Uh, so God gives a promise. Promise is going to come through the Messiah. In the meantime, we have this period of law. And so, so it's temporary. But, but why was it? I said, well, it's because of transgressions. Now, we're going to look at this more later today and spend a lot more time on it. But just for now, what he's saying is that there's two, there's two reasons God gave uh, Israel the law. One was to identify what transgressions are. It's to identify what's right in life, what's wrong in life, the path to life. One reason the law is given is to tell us here's the right way to live. Here's what's right, here's what's wrong. Okay? But the second reason it's given is to help us understand as the human race, our fallen nature. Like in other words, we can think that we're doing pretty well in life until you tell us what's expected. And once you tell us what's expected or what we should be, it increases transgressions. And, and we become in touch with our fallenness. And we're going to talk a lot about that later, but that's, what, that's kind of his point. Now, now we come to the hardest part of his argument. Like so far, it's been so easy, right? Um, <laughs> But this is just really extremely cryptic. When this, this passage that we're about to look at, the next verse, scholars argue, debate. It's like it's one of those times where you say, Paul, could, real, seriously, could you have just added a little bit more of what you're talking about? But here's, here's what seems to be happening. The false teachers are arguing that the law is the next step in our spiritual journey. The law is actually um, kind of more advanced education than the promise. Yeah, you start by trusting God in the promise, but then later God gives the law, and it's the law that really leads you to life. It's the law that's going to be the path to life, and it's really the law that is better than the promise. So yeah, you start by faith, that's baby steps, but now to really mature, you need to embrace the law. That's going to lead you. So the law is better than the promise. Are you with me? That's kind of what they're arguing. Now what Paul's going to say is no, it's the opposite. The promise is more important than the law. And the way he's going to argue this is by pointing out the two different ways God delivered the promise and the way he contrasted it with the way he delivered the law. Here's what he's going to say. When God delivered the promise to Abraham, he delivered it personally. He showed up in person and he gave him the promise. When God delivered the law to Israel, he did not show up in person. He operated through mediators. He operated through Moses. Right? He talked to Moses. Moses talked to the people. But on top of that, in Jewish tradition, there was a tradition that when God gave the law at Mount Sinai, that he actually communicated it to angels who communicated it to Moses, who communicated to the people. And in the New Testament, there's a couple passages that seem to support this teaching. So here's what Paul's argument is going to be. Um, Let's say the President of the United States is going to establish two separate and different treaties with two different nations. And with one treaty, he invites them to Washington, D.C. He sits down in person. He personally signs the treaty. Their president personally signs the treaty. In the other case, um, the President just sends one of our ambassadors maybe to their country to sign the treaty. Like, so he signs it through a mediator. Are you with me? So, so which treaty do you think is more important to our country? The first one, right? The face-to-face -face one, because he personally came. And what Paul's going to say is you can tell the promise is more important than the law because when, when God established the promise, he came face-to-face. -face. When he established the law, he established it via media. You, you follow the logic? 
but it's going to be very cryptic. So let's see what he says. The middle of verse 19, he says, The law was put into effect through angels by a what? A mediator. Okay, so the law was delivered via angels and via mediator of Moses. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, uh, but God is one. So a mediator uh, represents multiple parties. There's three parties involved. Uh, there's kind of a, uh, that's the way it works. But, but God is just one. And, and so what he seems to be doing is contrasting the two ways these different agreements were administered. Uh, God shows up just himself, one-on-one, versus God going through a mediator. And it's a very cryptic text. And I tell you, scholars really disagree and, and, and kind of fight over what he really means, tries to figure it out. But I think the main point is clear. The main point was, why was the law given? The law was given, it's a temporary arrangement until the Messiah came. It was given to help us understand transgression, to help kind of understand what's right and wrong, to increase our, our understanding of sinful nature. And, and you can see it's better because God delivered the promise into personally and you, via through a mediator, okay? Now, one last section. Uh, the last section is called uh, The Law, Its Ultimate Purpose. And so now Paul's going to talk about a little bit more about why the law was given. And 321 goes like this. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? So this is a key question. And I think as, as evangelicals, like that may be a new term to you, but as Bible-believing, uh, Christ-following people, kind of the category that sociologists would put us as evangelicals in our country. Okay, so, so as evangelicals, I think we've often missed the boat here. Um, We've, we've often said, oh, we're, we're Christians. We follow, we're under grace, not law. And so we've acted as if the law is a bad thing. But as we'll see today, the law was one of the greatest gifts God ever gave the human race. And so the question is, well, Paul, you're talking about promise against law. Are you saying the law was a bad thing? And he says, and we'll talk about this more later, but he says, absolutely not. Um, is the law therefore opposed to the promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could what? Impart life. I want you to catch that. Impart life. So if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness, right relationship with God, would have certainly come by the law. Now, we're going to come back to this later, but for now, what he's saying is the law is, is really good at doing a couple things. It tells you what's right. It tells you what's wrong. It points out the path to life, and it helps us to understand our fallen nature. What the law cannot do is it can't change human nature. It can't make us new people. It can diagnose our problem. It can't fix our problem. It can't impart life. So Paul says, if the law could impart life, it could change us. It could remake us so that we're able to keep the law and be the people we're created to be. If that could happen, that's the way it would have worked. But that's the problem with the law. It can't impart life. And we'll dig into that more later. Um, But so he says in verse 22, but the scripture declares that, uh, meaning the Old Testament, (laughs) the Old Testament declares that the whole world, all of us, were prisoners of sin. We're, we're kind of in bondage to ourself. And uh, so that what was promised, all these promises made to Abraham, uh, that they, they're, they're going to be given through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, might be given to those who believe. And so this is why God went the faith route, because the law route wouldn't have accomplished his plan of rescuing the race. And so in verse 23, it says, before this faith came, in other words, before Jesus came, we were prisoners by the law. And this is what the law does. It condemns us. It throws us in spiritual prison. Um, but, but that's what it was supposed to do. It was like our jailer, and it was, it was kind of putting us in jail 
until Jesus came to release us from that jail. And so he says we're locked up until faith should be revealed, in other words, until Jesus came. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, and he, he changes the metaphor here. Uh, in, in the Greek, the, the word is a word called um, pedagogos, which is where we get our word pedagogue from, the teacher of the young. And, and in, a Rome, in, in the Roman world, uh, a, a Roman family, uh, a wealthy family, they would hire a pedagogos, usually a slave, and th- their job was to train the child, the son, to maturity. Right? And, and then once you got to maturity, you don't need the, the, the tutor anymore. You don't need the guardian anymore. And so he says the law was like that. Um, it was put in charge to lead us to Christ uh, so that we might be justified by faith. It was kind of to help. The, the whole point of the law was to help us realize we really needed a Savior. And now with the Savior's come, we don't need to follow that law anymore. Uh, now, he says, verse 25, now that faith has come, then we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So, so big picture catches false teachers. What they're saying is great that you started by faith, but to truly be mature uh, to truly be right with God, you need to follow the law. As you follow this, you'll mature and become like Jesus. And, and Paul says, no, it's the opposite. The law was to show us how fallen we were to lead us to a place where we're ready to, to trust in Jesus. And, and so now that we've come there, we're mature as, and we've been let out of prison. We don't need the guardian over our life. We're, we've come of age. You know, we, we're ready. So you, you with me in this, guys? The gentleman. Now, now, in the time that we have, um, I, I want to kind of focus in on just this whole topic of the law and what it does in our life, because huge implications for us, what it means is to be a follower of Jesus and how to live life. So there on your note sheet, you have a section um, that's called uh, Law Versus Life. How do you relate to God? Because the reality is, is that even as Christ followers who believe in Jesus, that often we can be relating to God uh, as if we're under law, even when we're not under law. Um, and so um, what I want to do is I want to start with this one statement that Paul makes in Galatians 3.21 and then kind of unpack it a little bit more with, with a statement. He makes some statements he makes in Romans 7 to help us understand Galatians 3.21 and then, and then kind of apply it to our lives. So let's jump in. 3.21. <coughs> So here, here's a statement. Is the, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Is the law a bad thing? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have come uh, through the law. So, so this, here's the issue. The law, the law is not able to impart life. So, so let me kind of flesh this out. Here's what the law does. And it doesn't really matter whether we're talking Old Testament law or New Testament law. Right? When, like when I talk about the Old Testament law, uh, here's what we're supposed to be. In the New Testament, in a sense, Jesus elevates that law, doesn't he? Like in the New Testament, Jesus said, hey, in the Old Testament, it said, uh, don't kill people. He says, but I'm telling you, if you want to kill someone, you're guilty. Right? Uh, Jesus, uh, in the Old Testament, says, don't commit adultery. Jesus says in the New Testament, if you look at a woman and wish you could commit adultery, something's wrong. So in a sense, Jesus doesn't nullify the law. He elevates the law, and he helps us understand what does it look like to be uh, the people we were created to be. So, so it doesn't really matter whether you're talking in Old Testament law or kind of New Testament standards for us as Christ followers, um, that the law does not have the ability to impart life. It doesn't have the ability to change it. So, so what does the law do? Well, in the book of Romans, Paul spells this out really clearly. Here's what the law does, two things really well. Number one, it tells us what's right and what's wrong. And it points out 
the path to life. And, and as I said, this is one of the greatest gifts of God. Like in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, what advantage is there in growing up as a Jew? And he says, well, there's a lot of them, but the biggest one, the first one, is you are given the very words of God. This is you know, awesome. Um, it's a great gift. And so remember what Jesus said. When Jesus in Matthew 22 was once asked, what is the greatest commandments in all the lives? So there's actually two. Uh, number one, we're going to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Number two, we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and then he says the whole law, all the laws can be summed up in these two. So in other words, all the law in the Old Testament was simply an explanation of what does it look like to love God? What does it look like to love people? So the law is a good thing. And this is where as evangelicals, we've often missed that, oh, like the law is bad. No, the law was good. The law was a good thing. It tells us the path to life. Think of Psalm 119, for example. Uh, 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 David, uh, the psalmist is writing about the law. He says, your law, it's a light unto my path. It's a lamp unto my feet. Uh, your commands have made me wiser than all my teachers. I run in the path of your commands, for, for you have set my heart free. The law is a beautiful thing. Like, if you want to know how to live life to the fullest, if you, if you want to know, uh, here it is. God gives, here's love God, love people, spells it out. We'll talk more about that later. So that's the first thing the law does. It tells us what's right, what's wrong. It tells us the path of life. The second thing the law does is it helps us to get in touch with the truth about ourselves. Okay? It helps us to understand our fallen human nature. In a sense, the law is like a, like a diagnostic machine. Like every couple of years, you get a, a thing from the DMV, time to register your car, right? And, and there's a little note on there. It's a, it's a small gear. It's not small gear. And so if it's a small gear, what do you have to do? You have to take your car in and get it smog. Now, you can either go to one of two places. You can do a test-only place or a test-and-repair place. But, if, but when you go into the, let's say you go into the test-only place. You go in. They hook your engine up to a diagnostic machine. And then they tell you, oh, your engine's messed up. Uh, it's not operating correctly. Uh, and they say, well, what do I do about that? Well, I don't know. Uh, good luck. Uh, we, don't, we don't help. We don't fix it. Right? We, we don't fix it. We just tell you you're screwed up. That's our job. Uh, that would be $49, um, please. All right. So, so, um, and so uh, Paul said, what Paul teaches is that the law is like a diagnostic tool for the human race. That what it does is you might think you're doing pretty well in life. But well, hook yourself up to the law, which tells you what it looks like to love God, what it looks like to love people, and you immediately find out how screwed up you are. It's like, you, man, you're seriously messed up. And there's something wrong with you. That you're supposed to love God, you're supposed to love people, but you don't love God. You, you love everything but God. And you don't love people, you love yourself. And you thought you were a pretty good guy as long as you're just kind of comparing yourself with the rest of the losers of the human race. But, but all of a sudden, you hook yourself up to the law, and you realize, man, I, I'm seriously messed up. And that's why God gave the law to the human race to prepare us for the coming of a Savior. Because, because before that, we didn't even know that our engine needs to be smogged or needs to be fixed. But once you hook us up, we get it. Are you with me? Okay, that's the two reasons. Now, in Romans chapter 7, 
Paul unpacks this even more. And it's so important for us as Christ followers to get this or, or we're never going to walk with Jesus well. And you'll, you'll see why later. So there in your note sheet, I put a couple passages from Romans 7. So let's jump in. So, so Paul says in Romans 7, he's discussing the exact same issue as, as Galatians 3. And he says, is the law sin? Like, is, there some, is, the, is the law a bad thing? And he says, well, certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So that's the first thing the law does. The law identifies what's right, what's wrong, the path to life. And now he gives us an example. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Now, this is a brilliant example. We talk about Paul, brilliant. This is a brilliant example. I want you to go back with me to the Ten Commandments, uh, which are like the top, God's top ten. I got, this is top ten rules for loving God, for loving people, okay? And in the top ten, I want you to think with me about some of those rules that spell out what it looks like to love God. Love so, so, for example, rule number six, um, don't steal stuff, okay? That's rule number six. And so, um, so, like, what does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, let's say your neighbor just bought the coolest chainsaw in the world, right? And you've always wanted a chainsaw. Uh, you're a woman, and you've always wanted a chainsaw. And so you're looking over there, and you're like, is that a Husqvarna? Yes, it is. It's like, that's the one I've wanted. I've been looking through Martha Stewart, and I saw that thing. And, and so I, that's, I know, okay, so, so your neighbor's got the chainsaw, and you're just, and you're just man, I want that chainsaw. And so one day, one day you look over the fence and it's sitting out and it's late at night and you're thinking, I could take that thing, I'll put it in my garage, I'll hide it for a year, and then I'll just bring it out and say, look what I got at a garage sale and it should be awesome. And so you climb and, and so God says, wait, so, so that's not loving people, right? So, so don't rip off your neighbor's chainsaw, okay? That, that's not love, okay? So we got that, okay. Okay, so no, let's move on to the next rule. Rule number seven, uh, your, your, your neighbor has a really hot wife. Don't rip her off. Don't steal your, your neighbor's wife. Like, that's not loving. Okay? That would not be love. Okay? So don't, don't rip off someone else's spouse. Okay? Well, so let's go on to number eight. Okay, now I know your neighbor's got that really cool chainsaw and that really hot wife, but don't kill it just to get it. Okay? Like, like, no, that, that is not love. Okay? So, so do you get this? Like what the Ten Commandments are doing is they're just spelling out for us, what does it look like to love God? What does it look like to love people? Hey, don't rip off their stuff. Don't rip off his wife. Don't rip, rip off his life. Um, that's not love. Okay? So are you with me? So the, the law just kind of, kind of spells it out. This is what love looks like. And so, but here's what Paul says. This is where he's so brilliant. The next one, the, the, the next one, he says, hey, don't, uh, the last law says, don't covet anything. So in other words, not only do you not rip off the chainsaw, the wife, or kill him, you don't even want to. See? See, coveting deals with our heart. And this is what Jesus gets at later in the Sermon on the Mount. It's more than, it's more that like living life the right way. It's more than just not like ripping off someone. It's more than just not killing your neighbor. It's, it's not getting angry at your neighbor. Sermon on the Mount. It's more than just not like stealing his wife, it's, it's like not wanting to steal. It's like, like being the, the people that God created us to be means that our hearts don't even want to do the wrong thing. And so, so Paul says, 
Uh, that's why the law was given, to help us understand what's right, what's wrong, what love looks like. And, and so what he says is, I wouldn't have even known that I was wrong to want to rip off these things if the law had not said, don't covet. And so when it tells me, okay, now I get it. I get what's right. I get what's wrong. That's what the law does. But look what he says next. He says, but sin, now sin, and by sin he's talking about in context, our sin nature. He's not talking about specific sins, plural, that we commit. He, in this passage in Romans 7, he talks about this, this power that's within us that's like a magnetic pull towards the dark side. Have, we, have you ever felt that? <laughs> it's like you know this is wrong, and yet there's something that pulls you, and you don't even want to go that direction. You don't even want to, but if something pulls you. Paul says he calls that, that sin. He says there's something in the human race that when we rebelled against God, something broke, and there's this, this thing in us he calls sin that draws us towards the dark side. And so he says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, it produced in me every kind of covetous desire. So catch this. He says it's not only are we broken and we have a pull towards the dark side, but it gets worse than that. That as fallen human beings... I don't even maybe want my neighbor's chainsaw until God comes along and says, by the way, don't take his chainsaw. And the moment you tell me, don't take the chainsaw, it's like, what do you mean? Who are you to tell me what to do? I like that chainsaw. Maybe I will take that chainsaw. Now, you see this in little children, don't you? Like the little kid, there's toys over there in the corner. They're not even playing with them. But you say, hey, be sure to share those. What's next? They're over there. Mine. Like before, they didn't even care. They didn't even care about the toys. But now you've told them, don't just keep the toys. Oh, uh, yes, I am. I'm going to keep the toys. Are you catching what Paul's saying? The human race is so broken that not only do we have a pull to the dark side, but when the God of the universe who loves us steps in and says, let me tell you the path to life and how to love God and how to love people, that, we, that it makes us want to do the dark side all the more. So how screwed up are we? That we are so messed up, not only do we want what's wrong, but when God tries to help us out, we want it more. You see? And so this is Paul's point in Galatians chapter 3, that the, the false teachers are saying, hey, if you want to get more spiritual, you want to grow, embrace the law. It'll make you more like God. And Paul said, are you kidding me? The law was designed to show us how screwed up we are so that we can come to Christ and trust Him. Right? Now here's the thing. I think most of us here probably, we, we get this at one level and we don't at another. The part that we get or that we're learning as a church is what we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's the teaching about justification. That, that, that the law, what we realize through the law is we've broken these laws that, that we, are, we are guilty before the Creator, that there's no way that we can ever be made right with God through our performance. And so Jesus has come, and he died for us in our place, and he took the curse that was upon us, and he became the curse for us. And so all of our rebellion was paid for in the cross, and so we trust in Jesus to be made right with God, and so that we can have a relationship with God, not based on our performance, but on Christ's performance. That's what we call justification. And I would guess that most of us here today, we've been teaching on this for several weeks, most of us here, at least, at least mentally, we get that. 
This is the way the Christian life is lived. We, we trust in Jesus, not in ourselves. So we get it in terms of justification. But today we're going to begin to move into new territory in Galatians, something that Paul's going to touch on here. We'll get into much more in chapter 4, and especially in chapter 5. It's another doctrine, it's another teaching, and it's the second big teaching. There's two in Galatians. The second is called sanctification. And sanctification is it's like a modern word that would communicate that would be the word transformation. Uh, it's the process by which we are changed to become like Jesus, okay? And so here's what, we're, here's what I want you to understand. The law was meant to teach us two truths. It was, it was meant to lead us to Christ in terms of justification, that I'll no longer trust in myself to make myself right with God to have a relationship. I'll trust in Jesus. But the law was also designed to teach you how incredibly screwed up you are. And so that you can never be like Jesus on your own. That the law was given to help you understand that no matter about how much willpower, how much self-effort, how much self-discipline, no matter how many verses you memorize, no matter how many life groups you join, no matter how at time in the morning you get up for your quiet time, no matter what you do, that on your own you will never, ever be able to be like Jesus because at your core you are fallen and, 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 and you will just dig yourself into a deeper hole. And this is the second main teaching of Galatians is that when we come to Christ and we're made right with him through justification, a miracle happens. The Holy Spirit comes in our life and it's only as we learn to trust the Holy Spirit to change us that we will be changed. Just like it's only when we learn to trust Jesus for our salvation that we were justified. Now let me unpack this a little bit. And it's a little, little hard to follow, but but here's what I find. In, in our lives as Christ followers, if you're a serious Christ follower, now if you're not a serious Christ follower, and, and I realize this sometimes for whatever reason, this is, we came to Jesus, we heard the message of the gospel, we, we believed in him at some level, maybe we're saved, maybe we're not, I, I'm not the one to judge that, but, but there's not a lot of fruit in our life, there's not a lot of growth in our life, we're kind of walking down the, the middle road of life, getting run over from both sides, you know, we're kind of one foot in the world, one foot in Jesus, and come to church sometimes, not all the time. We're not really growing. We're kind of pursuing the world, and yet we think of ourselves as saved because at one point we had, and I'm not even saying you are or aren't, but all I'm saying is that if that's where you are, then what I'm about to say doesn't really apply to you because you're never going to experience the life God wants for you as long as you're there. It's like, like if, if, as long as you're seeking the world, one foot in, one, your, your life is always going to be screwed up. That's just the way it is. And so if that's you and you say, I like it that way, well, that's, okay, that's what you get. You know, that's, that's, that's the way it works. That's the way it works. Disobedience brings death and life, and that's just the way it works. And, and so what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you, okay? Um, by the way, I would hope that you make the decision to get over, <laughs> like, on the right side. Yeah, so you're like, what? You don't even care? No, I care, about it. it's just like, it's like... Like, what I'm, I'm, I'm saying is, like, I'm here to teach those who want to grow. Like, if you don't want to grow, well, then I can't help you. You know, it's like, I, it's like if you, you want to grow, if you want to pursue Jesus, now, now let's talk, okay? So, so here you are. Here's what I find in, in, in most or many Christ, not all, but most Christ lives that, that really want to follow Jesus, that we often go through two stages in our spiritual life. Like I say, it, it, will, it will vary 
from person to person. It doesn't work the same, but this is often true. And this has been noted by the great spiritual writers of the, of the Christian church all through Christian history. And here, so here's stage one. Okay? Stage one, you come to Christ, you get saved, and you realize it's only by, by Jesus you can have a relationship with God. So you, you throw yourself on Jesus. You, you, you trust in Jesus, not on yourself to be made right with God. You trust totally in Jesus. It's like you just, Jesus, I'm yours. I, I can't save myself. Absolutely, I trusted you. And by that faith, we're born again. The Holy Spirit comes in our life, and we're forgiven, and we receive justification. And we start our spiritual life, and the Holy Spirit comes in, and we start growing. And so, and so now we're growing, and the Holy Spirit's leading us, and we don't even realize he's leading us because we're not smart enough to realize that. We just, he just, just, just is. And, and so we have a new hunger for the Word. We start reading the Word. We start going to church, and, and we're growing, and sermons are hitting us, and, and we learn about this, and we learn about that, and we start serving, and we start giving, and we're sharing Christ. And we're just kind of, we're just doing the thing, and we've got this new life, and it's awesome, and we're growing. And this goes on for a couple years, or maybe three years, or five years, or different people, different length of time. And, and so it's all working. And so, and so that, then there comes, we go, at some point we come into phase two. And at phase two, everything stops working. It's like all of a sudden God seems far away. God seems distant. Uh, when we pray, uh, it doesn't seem like we're hearing his voice. Um, we read the Bible, it's dead. Sermons are boring. Um, it, it, you know, worship just kind of lost its, its flavor. We're, you know, we're, we're going through the motions on these things, but, but God seems far away. And we can't figure out why. It's kind of like a desert, like God's led us into a desert. And, and sometimes spiritual writers have often referred to this as kind of a dark night of the soul. It's just sort of this, like God is distant. And so what happens is that we're hungry for him, and so we begin to pursue him more. And so we kind of redouble our efforts. And, and so we, we start, we're going to spend more time in the word. We're going to be at church more. We're trying to take better notes. We're trying to enter into worship. We're, we're serving. We're giving more. We're, we're just doing everything we can because what we, what we really think is that those growth years, what we think is it was happening because we were making it happen because of all the things we were doing. It's not really what was going on. What was really happening is the reason we were growing is because God was growing us. He was using all those conduits, which are important, but he was the one really flowing through them. And, but but we, he wants to take us to a new level. It's what, this is why he wants to take us to a new level of relationship with him. And so what he does, in a sense, he withdraws. He pulls us out in the desert. We start getting thirsty. And so we start doing what we think is the key to following Jesus. We start willpowering it. We start self-effering it. We start disciplining ourselves. Because deep in our side, we really think, see, we, we haven't realized yet our fallenness. And we really think if we set our mind to it and we work really hard, we can change ourselves to become like Jesus. So we really, that's our core belief. And so he leads us into the desert to break us of that core belief. And in the desert, what we learn is that what Paul learned in Romans chapter 7, it's there in your notes, in verse 14, 15, what look at me, it says, in me, that is in my natural self, apart from Jesus, there is no good thing. And he learns that that he's fallen, and that it doesn't matter how hard he works at it, he cannot change his core nature, right? So, so what happens is that we eventually come to the place in the desert where we 
fall down and we say, God, I can't do the Christian life. I, I can't be like you. I can't change myself. I can't love people. I can't overcome this particular sin. I, I can't make the word come alive. I'm, I'm helpless without you. I'm fallen without you. And at that point, something breaks at some point online, and we begin to trust in Jesus for our transformation like we, used, we first started trusting Jesus for our salvation. Are you with me in this? So just like with justification, you came to the point where you realized, I can't do anything to make myself right with God. I'm helpless. Jesus, I trust you. Now we come to the same point in our transformation where we realize I'm broken, I'm fallen, I don't have the ability and we come and so we say, Jesus, I just help me. I can't help myself. And, and at that place of brokenness, we learn to trust because our, our, our confidence in our own ability has finally been broken. And, and at this point, the law has done its work. The law has revealed the truth about who we are. And for some people, I find this happens in, in, in long, like, um, a long, it's like a long journey. In my life, there was like a seven-year journey, uh, kind of a dark night of soul, that place of brokenness. What I find in most people, it's usually not like that. It's usually that God kind of breaks us over time. Like one thing after, we, we, he leads us into situations. We have a hatred for someone, and, and we, we, we try our best to control it, and we, it brings us to the end of ourselves, and we, God, I can't change this. I need you. You see what I'm saying? It's like over time, there's different issues. There's sexual temptation. I can't overcome this. And it comes up, God, help me. I'm just, I can't do this. And, and there's a brokenness that comes. Are you, are you with me in this? So what I find is that in some people, it's like a long series of dark night of soul. That's like the spiritual writers have been right of that. For others, it's just like situation after situation where he brings us to the end. Of our, and over the course of our life, we learn this more and more. But here's the beauty. The reason that God leads us in the desert, whether it's in the short term or the long term, is always the same. Because he wants to release his Holy Spirit in our life in new power. And the only way the Holy Spirit gets released in our life is through faith, through trust. And so let's look there in your note sheet just real quickly, then we'll be done. Galatians 2.20. This verse we've looked at a couple times I want to go back to again. In many ways, it kind of encapsulates, summarizes the whole message of Galatians, both justification and sanctification, these two main themes. And he says in 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Now, let me explain what he means there. Um, the Apostle Paul came to a point in his life of understanding that not only have I done a lot of crime, committed a lot of crimes against the king that I need to be forgiven for, justification, but there is something deeply wrong in my human nature. He calls it sin. And so what happens, in order for me to follow Jesus, I, I don't need just Jesus to die in my place to pay for the penalty of my sins. I, I need someone to somehow like die for me because the only solution to my problems is for me to die. <laughs> like the only, the only way I can follow Jesus is for me to be dead because I, I, I'm not like Jesus. And so what I need is I need someone to step in and like die for me so that I could rise again and be a new person. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. When Jesus went to the cross for us as believers, that's why he went, so that by faith in him, we could leave our old life behind and by our connection with him, our spiritual connection with him. So I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but here we go, but what? But Christ 
lives in me. Okay? There is the Christian life. It's not me following Christ. It's Christ living in me. It's Christ empowering me through the Holy Spirit reshaping me. And, and he says, so the life that I now live in the body, I live by what? By faith in the Son of God. So when I came to Jesus, I trusted him for my justification. But as we grow, I begin to learn to trust him for my transformation. For my, and as we do, as I learn to live by faith and trust in his power, and then hit the power of his spirit is going to be released in my life in new ways, and I'm truly transformed. And that's what we're going to be exploring increasingly as we go through Galatians. Today's sort of an introductory shot over the bow. Uh, get, your mind, get your mind thinking about this. Uh, next week in chapter 4, he'll talk more about what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in our life a little bit. But when we get into chapter 5, we'll be drilling down in this to l- a lot. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? It means to be, we're justified, but because of that justification, we enter into this new relationship with God where the Holy Spirit comes in our life, and the key to you becoming like Jesus is not your self-effort, it's not your willpower, it's not your discipline. The key is learning to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. See, that's the key, to lean into him and to follow the key. And we'll be spending a lot of time in that as we go through this series. Let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you for this time. And we, we thank you both for the, the spiritual reality of justification, but, but also the spiritual reality of sanctification. That when you went to the cross, it wasn't simply to pay the price for our sins. It was to die on our behalf so that we could rise with you through the power of your spirit to a whole new life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach these things to us as a church. We realize that we can't begin to understand them. We can't begin to get them apart from the teaching of your Holy Spirit, his revelation. So we pray that he would be our teacher and that you would release us, that we could move into this new freedom, not just the freedom of justification, being free from our past, but freedom of sanctification, the empowering of the Holy Spirit that frees us to move into our future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God, that's our, our prayer today, that with everything uh, that was within us, we shout forth your praise. Well, we, we shout forth your praise because you died for us. You paid the price for our rebellion. You took the curse. You became the curse for us, that, that in you we might become the very righteousness of God, that we receive all the credit that it accrued to your account, is accrued to our account, that we are made right as you are right, that we have a relationship with the Father, that we've been adopted into His family. And that because of that, we've received the gift of Your Holy Spirit who transforms and changes us from the inside out to be what we could never be on our own apart from the work of Your Spirit. And so, God, because of that, we shout forth Your glory. And we look forward to that day where we will be fully with You, transformed like You. And we will be exploring and the adventure of the next life forever with you. God, in perfect love for you and one another. But God, here in this time, in this place, we shout forth your glory for the work of justification, for the reality of sanctification. And we pray that as a church, you would teach us how to lean hard into you, that we would learn to rely on you, not just for our our salvation, but for our transformation, that we could sing and worship with a new passion because of the joy and the power we're experiencing as we learn to lean into you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
Well, it's just so good to be with you. And isn't it good just to talk on these things and, and what Jesus did for us? So he didn't just die so that we could be forgiven, that he died to release his spirit in us that we could be transformed to be like him. And, and that's what this journey is about through Galatians, the first half, a lot on justification. Uh, we're going through a transition zone now, but we're going to be talking increasingly about transformation in the coming weeks. And I just look forward to that. Next week, uh, chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about adoption. Um, you may not know this, but in the Roman Empire, adoption was common. In fact, the Roman empire, um, emperors would often um, just not really be under their own sons. Um, and so they would, like, I don't like you, so I'm going uh, to choose someone else. I'm going to adopt them. And they'll be the next emperor. Like, like how crazy is that? And uh, and so they may even adopt a slave or something. You're the next emperor. And so Paul uses this to talk about what happens. We come to Jesus. We were once slaves, but now we get adopted with all the rights and privileges of Jesus in the family of God. And, and what that means, and the, and the biggest part of that is the coming of the Spirit of His Son into our life. And so next week we're going to talk about adoption and implicate what that means for us as, as children of God who's truly our father. Now, what's it mean to be a, have a father? Um, but also, as we're adopted, we become part of this family. And, and so what does it mean to be part of this family where all the old barriers that break down relationship with the human race, culture, uh, a re, uh, kind of religion, um, uh, racial differences, prejudices, economic barriers that break down the human race, how in this new family of God, those are, are broken and, and that that's his vision for us here as a church, that we would become this new family where the old barriers are broken down. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful vision? And so that's what we're going to be talking about next week. What does it mean to be adopted? What does it mean to have God as Father? What's it mean to break down in the community of Jesus all these barriers that, that tear us apart? So a very important message. Hope you can uh, join us if you're, if you're gone uh, because uh, of bad reasons or good. I hope you... Uh, you uh, <laughs> right. That you podcast it, all right? So uh, until then, may the Lord be with you. May his love be all over you. May you realize increasing ways the truth this week of your fallenness, but, but not so you feel bad about yourself, but, but so that it releases you to the freedom of trust in Jesus, a new way that, that you transformed and you experienced the new life that he came to give you. Until then, may God's blessing be on you. I love you. I'll see you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.